Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Take your Bible and open to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We've been in the Advent season now, our third Sunday. We're marching toward the celebration of Christ and his Advent. I just want to remind you that we will have a Christmas Eve service at 6 p.m. And this is in your handout today. And then we'll have a 10 a.m. Um, Sunday morning or Christmas morning worship service as well. So I hope that you can make both. Um, Today we're looking at the born supremacy. We've talked about the prophecies of Christ, the born prophecy, and looked back briefly, um, not even exhausted by any means, at some of the prophecies that foretold his coming, his arrival, where he'd be born, when he'd be born, uh, and how all of those were fulfilled uh, by the birth of uh, the Christ child, there in Bethlehem, and last week we looked at his identity. How did people identify him as the Christ? We certainly thought about Peter and his uh, confession of uh, Jesus as the Christ, uh, Son of the living God, and then, of course, Jesus himself and what he and how he um, identified himself to those he was ministering to. And uh, today we're going to look at Paul's letter to the Colossians, just the opening chapter, the first uh, right there in the middle is a beautiful hymn uh, that is uh, a part of uh, his letter to the Colossians, thinking of looking at the supremacy of Christ or the born supremacy. It is easy in our age, or any age for that matter, um, to fall into the trap of thinking that Jesus is not the only show in town. By show, I mean Savior, um, God. Um, way to live one's life, ethic to live by, whatever you want to throw in there, but rather that he's just one of many voices or truths that we should listen to, right? Um, And uh, sometimes, in fact, too often when we get into trouble, he's the voice we'll cry out to, but it's all the other times where we need work. People today might agree that Jesus was even prominent in his day and time, but would stop short of saying that Christ Jesus was preeminent. And when we look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following, you will get the picture because it expressly states that he is, in fact, preeminent. King, ruler, authority for all matters in life and death and for all eternity. Our text this morning is one of the clearest that Scripture gives us as it presents a picture and a detail of the supremacy of Christ. It describes who Jesus is. Just a basic understanding, which is is all we can get to this morning of this passage, uh, ought to lead us, though, to an encounter that is set apart and holy and helps you to understand the weight of who Christ Jesus is. We need to understand that so we don't get sucked into thinking that this is just about some baby in a manger and some cute story. But rather, this is a life-changing event that we celebrate every single year and worship every Sunday and really should set apart as worship every part of our life, every day of our life. 
course, Jesus Christ, when it comes to Scripture, is the central or the crux of the Christian faith and our practice. Without Jesus, there is nothing. He is the driving force of the why, of the how, the when, or the what that we do as the church. Anything or anyone other than Christ Jesus uh, does not even come close to matching or surpassing his supremacy. And yet we try to insert those who compete with him only to see them fall and fail because there are none like him. And I'll tell you that if you've got something or someone competing for space for Jesus and his lordship in your life, then friend, you have an idol and you have stepped outside of the path that God has laid before you. As one that is born supreme over all, Jesus stands at the center of the universe. He stands at the center of scripture and he ought to be the central focus of our personal and corporate lives as Christians. To put it as one old pastor said it, Jesus is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. There's no middle ground. So if you have your Bible, please stand with me. Colossians chapter 1 as I read from verse 15 to verse 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Let's pray together. Fathers, we come before your word this morning, having already experienced a time of worship and singing your praises and glorifying you. Father, we come to the source of truth for our life, a source of truth that has changed our life, that can change our life. Father, we come to look at your word this morning and we see that Christ is supreme, preeminent over every part, not just our life, but of the church as well, not over just the church, but all of creation. Father, what we do not know this morning, teach us where we lack obedience. Father, help us to apply it and follow in obedience. And Father, let us stand firm in the hope of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. I'm a little slower this morning because I still feel like I'm on a roller coaster from yesterday. We had the youth up at Fiesta, Texas for a little outing and, and uh, had some fun. Too much screaming, 
and my head still feels like I don't know if I'm on the Superman roller coaster or if I'm on the Rattler or the Diabolical or what are the other horrible names they have for roller coasters, but um, man, I still feel like I'm moving. So if you you know, um, if you see me jerk, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, my body's just reacting to a loop or something that it thinks it's going through. All right. Paul, my friends, Paul was combating this heresy in the Colossian church. And it was a, a heresy brought on by a group of clever um, false teachers who were trying, basically, in a simple way to explain it, trying to replace the, the Colossians' passionate devotion to Christ, what they had found in the gospel, what they had heard through Epaphras in his preaching, what they had come to believe in, their passionate devotion to following Jesus with a mild approval of Jesus. Um, and it began with attacking who Jesus was or who Jesus was not. And the reason Paul has written this letter, well, he gives us thanksgiving and prayer. He's grateful for the Colossian church. He's, he's moved by their love and devotion and their sincerity of their faith in Christ Jesus. Um, and he's thankful for them and, and of the faith that they're displaying and what the, the reports that he's heard about their faith. Um, and yet, here we are in verse 15. He's setting out from the very beginning of this chapter, and he'll work through this the rest of the chapters of this letter uh, by reminding them that Christ, it is Christ Jesus who had, had delivered them from the domain of darkness and transferred them into the kingdom of his beloved son, that is Christ Jesus. Based on that, here's why Christ is important. Here's why we cannot shrink back from the gospel. As he's combating this, this, uh, this heresy, we need to understand that we face this same test today. The church is always under, well, let's say the gospel is always under attack from outsiders, trying to pull away, trying to change its message. The gospel, uh, you know, it might be largely a social gospel for some. Um, it might be uh, a, chain, a gospel of political change or a political narrative for others. But that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is about life change, changing, taking a dead man out of his sins and transferring him into the kingdom of light, into his marvelous light. That light is, of course, Christ Jesus and bringing him into or her into the church. So what we face today is, a, is a, a mild approval of Jesus, or what I like to call Christ zero, or diet Jesus, or Jesus light. Take your, your choice. You remember Coke Zero. You have, um, uh, you have, it's a product that's been out for some years now, about 20 years, I guess, right? All the taste of Coca-Cola with none of the consequences of Coca-Cola, the real thing anyway, uh, I thought I liked it better than Diet Coke when I could still drink those. Um, but uh, you have that. But we transfer that thought into following Jesus, um, like Jesus, Christ zero. And, and that is not what Scripture calls us to. He doesn't call us to a life of, of ease or comfort. Uh, but rather, he calls us to be completely devoted to Christ because Christ has changed our life. He has brought us and transferred us from darkness into light. So based on that... Paul breaks into this, verse 15, into what many believe is an early hymn of the church that he pins for us, and it is accurate, it is right on with who Christ is. So let me give you some reasons why Jesus Christ is supreme and the reason that we need to hold firm in the faith, which he instructs them to do after he's done. In verse 21, 22, 23, he instructs them to hold firm into their faith and to be steadfast in the hope of the gospel. This is why he instructs them to do that. One is that Jesus is supreme because of his relationship with God the Father. 
Now, you look on your handout, and you see all those bullet points, and you think, man, I should have brought a snack. You probably should have, but that's okay. We're going to make it through. Jesus is supreme because of his relationship with God the Father. God the Father, God the Son. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. That Greek word there, icon, that's the same word we use in English, spelled a little different, but it's the same word, icon, image. He is the image of the invisible God. The author of Hebrews says something very similar to that in his opening of his letter of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He says there in reference to Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. To say that he is the image, that icon, refers to something that is shaped to resemble something else, such as a portrait or a coin, right? For generations, from, from, for generations, we have been, as, as, God, as God's creations, men and women, we have been after the fashioning of some kind of image to worship, an idol to pay homage to. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, Paul writes to the Romans, he says that we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Just look at our coinage. Oh, but pastor, it says, in God we trust. Well, you get an alien and they look at that and say, oh, is, is that image your God? Who's, who's, who's that? Because in Jesus' day, the image was Caesar. And Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, right? You see where I'm going with that. Early on, coming out of the Exodus, you'll remember as we worked through that way back at the beginning of this year, God's very own people demanded that Aaron make them a golden calf to worship. And when he did, and it was fashioned, they said, this is the God who delivered you out of Egypt, this golden calf. But it was far from. Paul has identified Christ Jesus as the perfect representation or the likeness of God. Now, Scripture tells us, in fact, John's gospel reminds us and teaches us that no one has ever seen God, right? God is invisible. That's what Scripture teaches. No one had ever seen him. But listen to what John goes on to say. The one and only Son, who is himself God, is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. So when we want to know what God is like, when we want to sit and ponder, or parents, when your children ask you, what, what does God look like? You simply say, Jesus. No, we can't see him physically, but we can look into the word of God and we can read the four gospels and see who Jesus was and what he did and who he still is today because Jesus has revealed him to us. Jesus is literally the explanation of God. He has revealed his personal character in every single way, the revelation of what God is really like. He is the exact radiance. Man, what what a picture that is. It's another powerful text there in Hebrews. He is the exact expression of the essence of God. There's no uh, uh, deformity or, or anything like, you know, on occasion uh, I purchase coins. I'm not really a coin collector. I'm mostly doing it for the precious metal, but every now and then I, I like to just sit and look at how perfect they are. It's so different than a quarter that's been out in circulation that's dented and scratched and tarnished, but yet you pull out one that's not been in circulation, and it's just it's so pristine and clear, almost as clear as a mirror, looking in a mirror. 
This is what Christ is for us. He is an exact expression without error, without any uh, fault in him, in his expression of the Father. When we think about man, we know Scripture teaches that we are made in the image of God. In fact, God said, let us make man in our image. I believe there he's talking to the triune Godhead. Let us make man in our image, right? We are not made in it like Christ is. We got messed up in the garden. Thank you, Adam. That image is messed up now. But it is Christ in the image of God, because he was not made in the image of God. He actually is the image of God. And this is why it's important to understand the supremacy of Christ in this opening verse. He is the image of the invisible God because he has come to restore that image in us which was broken and tarnished in the garden. And only Christ Jesus can do that. It's not someone else coming from the outside because they are not the image of God. We are made in the image of God, but Christ is the image of God. There's a huge difference there. And that is why Christ had to come, and that's why he did come. Christ, the image, the only image of God. It's not that he is like God, but that he is God. That changes the narrative for some of us in Advent. It it ought to change what we're doing around Christmas. It ought to change every day of our life when we remember that Christ is supreme because he is the image of the invisible God. God in the flesh that John wrote there in his opening chapter of his good news. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. He's not some two-bit knockoff impersonator like you might see out in Vegas with Elvis. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? The disciples, Thomas and Philip, there's two examples with all of their limitations. The disciples followed Jesus for three years, lived with Jesus, shook his hand multiple times, had dinner with him, saw people get uh, lives changed, healed, all kinds of things. Even on a lake fishing, right? They, they spent time with their master. But in all of that, you still have moments like this in John chapter 14, where Lord, uh, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. Right? He had just had that conversation with them that he was going away to prepare a place. You know the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then in verse 8, Philip pops that question. Just show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. And Jesus responded to him by saying, Have I been among you all this time, and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Oh, that I had time to unpack all of that. The words that I speak to you do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Well, what about old Thomas? In John chapter 20, Thomas saw Jesus. This is after the resurrection. He saw Jesus. He didn't believe Jesus was back yet. He hadn't seen him yet. But after the resurrection, they're all in the upper room. Jesus isn't there. Thomas is there. He's been questioning and doubting all along. And then Jesus shows up. He sees the wounds from the crucifixion. And Thomas falls to his knees and responds to Jesus, my Lord and My God. Friends, he is supreme because of his relationship with God, because he is God. In the J.B. Phillips translation, he translated it this way, Christ, excuse me, Christ is is the visible expression of the invisible God. 
Not me, Christ. Please get me that correction, all right? Christ is the, in, the, the visible expression of the invisible God. Christ is the visible expression of the invisible God. He bore the image of the earthly Adam. He took on flesh and the image of the heavenly Father, God. God made flesh. Second, Jesus is supreme over all things because he is the firstborn over all creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now that term has been misunderstood by many. If you were to be in a parliament of world religions and you were guiding the thoughts and the affairs of man or of your own nation, you'd be excited to read that because that parliament of world religions would be, would be the, the, the group to use that statement to build up their heresy by pointing to what they teach, which is to teach that Jesus was just one person or the first person created. There's an old preacher uh, that was in Alexandria, Egypt, okay, other side of the world. But he's an old preacher named Arius. He's the one that came up with that false teaching, that heresy. But there's still a group today that has picked that up. Their name is the Jehovah's Witness. They say Jesus is a created being. He's not the Son of God. Or, well, they would say that, but they don't mean the way the Scripture teaches it. They ignore the context here. They ignore the context that it says Jesus is the creator of everything. John 1.1 helps us to understand that. The word in the, word in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is this fact that while the firstborn can mean the first child... It often means in Scripture, first in rank and honor, such as in Psalm chapter 89, which is talking about Christ's coming. I will also make him my firstborn, greatest of the kings of the earth, first in rank, first in honor. So when Paul uses that language, and he'll use it again in a moment, he's simply pointing out that the highest honor, the highest rank, belongs to Christ Jesus. He is supreme over all of creation. Why is that? His next point. He is supreme because by him all things were created. Now, if he was created, how could he be the one to create all things? You see, they ignore the context. They ignore what's there. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, most believe those four things are pointing to the uh, spiritual realm. All things were created through him and for him. That statement by Paul, supported by verse 15, it points to Christ being supreme in, supreme in creation because he is the creator. Created by him, through him, for him. John 1 verse 3 says, All things were created through him, and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. Genesis 1 1, in the beginning, God created so if everything was created by Christ Jesus in the beginning God created there you see that Christ was there Christ Jesus was there at creation as verse 19 says all of the fullness of God dwells in him so that means all of God's creative powers make him supreme because he was the one who created Paul also says that all things were created for him meaning that Christ is the end goal of creation. So by him, he's the, one that, he's the agent that created it. 
through him, the agent through whom God accomplished all of those created acts, for him is pointing us to Christ as the goal or that he will be glorified by all of his creation. Everything began with him. Everything ends with him. He will be the one to create the new heavens and the new earth. Everything began with him. Everything ends with him. Sound familiar? Well, the book of Revelation will tell us that Christ Jesus is the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. Alpha and omega, that's the beginning and end of the Greek alphabet. A to Z. And according to Philippians chapter one, uh, 2, verse 11, when he comes, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and will give him glory. Friends, Jesus Christ is God. Jesus is supreme because he is the sustainer of that creation. Look at verse 17. It says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is externally, he is eternally existent. He is eternally existent, which is an attribute that is only true of God. He continues to this day, right now, at 1152, on December 11th, he is holding everything together. He is sustaining everything we know, eternally and in our own timeline. He continues to do that. Without that continuing activity of the sustainer, though, everything we see, everything we know would go into chaos, into absolute chaos. So what's holding you in your seat this morning? Gravity. What is gravity? It's a part of his creation. He put everything in motion. He sustains it. Man, if he took one second off for a moment and gravity's gone and he quit sustaining his creation, we're going to still fly off. Now, some of us, we'd be weightless and that, you know. That's, that may be a good thing around holiday time, right? But he's holding everything in creation together. The sun continues to do its thing. Why? Because Christ is sustaining his creation. Who put the sun there? He did. When he said, let there be light, and he created the sun, the stars, and the moon. He hung those things up where they go. What keeps the earth spinning the way it does? Man, we had that conversation in the car this week. I'm like, where did that, con- where did that question come from? But that's, that's exactly what we talked about. How come the earth moves so slow? Well, actually, God put it right in the motion to the speed he wanted it. Any faster, and we'd be a lot heavier. Any slower, we'd be a lot lighter. He put it exactly at the right angle. So we'd experience seasons as we travel around the sun. Man, he's holding it all together. But not only in his creation, friends, he's holding your life together. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that he sustains all things by his powerful word. We always sing that little kid song. He's got the whole world in his hand, but he's sustaining it by the power of his word. The same word that said, let there be light is the same word that sustains it. That's why he is supreme. I love what Paul says as he's preaching in Acts chapter 17. For in him, in Christ, we live and move and we have our being. Friends, we don't draw our breath without Christ sustaining life. That is why we look at him as supreme. Anytime we step out of alignment where, where Jesus is not first in our life or we say, man, you're not so, uh, you're not so boss today, we, we step out of God's design, we step out of that, that means we've transgressed. Friends, that means we've now stepped into sin and that's where this truth comes in. If he is Lord of your life, then he is Lord of every single part. But get this, in this Advent season as we celebrate the birth of that Christ child, he was these things when he was wrapped in claws lying in a manger. 
It didn't come on him at baptism. It didn't come on him when he hung on the cross. It didn't happen to him when he was, when he was raised from the dead. He was all those things at every point in his life. It didn't happen on the eighth day when he was presented at the temple. It didn't happen when his mom and dad took him to Egypt and they came back at the age of 12 when he's at the temple again telling the old man what it's all about. It happened for all time. He came that way. He left that way and he'll come back that way and he'll always be that way. Amen. We need to grasp that and let and under grasp who Jesus is because he will keep us from the imposters. He will keep us from the fakes and the phonies. And that's why Paul was writing this. Next, I don't even know what point it is. Jesus is supreme because he is the head of the church. I tried to keep counting the first time and I, you know, I ended up on like 25, so I was off. But look at this. He is supreme because he is the head of the church. It's not the pastor, not the deacons, not even the church body. In practical matters, daily, yes, church, we get to vote. But in the big picture, it's Christ. Look at verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. As Jesus is supreme and sovereign over creation, it gets real serious when it comes down to the church. Now we're getting practical. He is supreme in every realm of our life. And he is supreme because he is the head. He is the first. He began the church. He sustains the church. And he's purifying his church. And he is the source of our life. Without him, we are not the church. Now, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we are the church. We are a body made up of lots of different moving parts, lots of different gifts. We're not all having the same gift. That would get rather boring and mundane. We are different parts. But we all have one head, that is Christ. He controls and is over the body. We take our direction from Jesus through the Holy Spirit and through his word, and we are under his authority and no one else. That comes down, that comes home when the outside social standing society begins to drift away from what has culturally been Christianity, which is what's been happening for the last, well, since the 60s. It comes home to the church that that line is being drawn in the sand and it's getting real serious now. And we've got to decide that he is the head of the church and we've got to live as the living stones under the authority of Christ Jesus, the cornerstone. Jesus is supreme because also he is the firstborn from among the dead. That's there in verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I told you to tell you he was preeminent. There you go. Again, this is not about time, but rather first in rank. There are other people in Scripture that have been raised to see the story of Lazarus, raised by Jesus himself after uh, being in the grave for four days, but they all died again. But when we look at Christ Jesus, he was the first to rise and never die again. Let that sink in for a moment. He is the first person to conquer death. He is the one to overthrow the powers of death and sin together. He is the firstborn from among the dead. He is the most important of all who have ever been raised from the dead or ever will be. And without his resurrection, church, there is no hope for us. This is exactly what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 15. We looked at that briefly last week. He wrote, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, that's that image dying there, Adam, he messed it up. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Without Christ in this moment being firstborn from the dead, first in rank, first in position, first overall, and without the resurrection, we are most of all to be pitied. That resurrection marked his triumph, marked his supremacy over death. In verse 4 of Romans chapter 1, we remember that he was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is supreme because all the fullness of God dwells in him. That's maybe a restatement of what I've already said, but Paul's put it in here. All the fullness of God, that is all of God's fullness All of his characteristics, all of his nature took up residence in Jesus. Fullness means completeness. Some of you getting ready to be full from lunch. You're going to be completely full. You get the picture. Jesus then is the full embodiment of God's attributes in human form. The word made flesh. God dwelling amongst us. Paul is telling the Colossians that God wanted his fullness to live in his son, Jesus Christ. Christ has now become God's dwelling place. It was no longer the temple in Jerusalem. It was no longer the four walls, but rather in Christ where God's presence dwelt. God in totality. Everything God is, Jesus is. Fully human, fully divine. Jesus is supreme because through him we are reconciled to God. Here's where it comes home. Jesus is supreme because through him we are reconciled To God. Look at verse 20. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Reconciliation is the reestablishing of that relationship, causing the relationship to become friendly, peaceable, when it was not that way before. It is the removal of hostility. You see, when we are in our sin, we are dead men walking. We are dead in our sin and in our trespasses. And the removal of that debt, which is caused by sin, the curse of sin, which is death, has brought hostility between God and man. And yet reconciliation is the act whereby Jesus has paid for that sin and that punishment and that curse through his shed blood on the cross. This is why Christ must be supreme. If he is not supreme, then he was not worthy to die on the cross. He was not the one to pay the penalty for your sin. And we are to be pitied. But if he is supreme, if he is God, then he is the one who is to die on the cross. He is the one who could take the punishment for us. He is the one that could take our place. He is the one that could die and be raised back, back to life on the third day. If he's not supreme, then it's not true. But if he is supreme, every single bit of it is absolutely true and it changes our life and that we can be reconciled to God. He says in verse 21, you were once alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. That's just sin. Let's call it what it is. It's sin. When we transgress and we go off and do our own thing, we live however we want to live. Man, I'm free to do what I want to do. I can be who I want to be. I can identify how I want to identify and you can't stop me. You know what? God's going to let you do that. But there's a consequence to that. The consequence of that, which is a consequence to sin, is death. We all face it. 
You were alienated and hostile in your minds, but verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. This is why it is important that we grasp the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ. Jesus' death allows God's enemies or sinners to become God's friends. Before Christ on the cross, we were at odds with God. If you've not trusted Jesus yet for the salvation of your life, the forgiveness of your sins, if you've not trusted what Christ did on the cross, then you are at odds with God. The scriptures would say you are an enemy of God. Keep that in mind. You are separated. You are estranged. You're alone. You're an outsider. Shut out, cut off, locked out. There's a wall up and you're not going to go around it, over it, or under it, or through it. The only way is to go through Jesus Christ. He has given his body through his death to reconcile you, to pay the debt, to present you holy, faultless, and blameless. You can't do that on your own. Coming to church and checking that box and doing all the external things, that's not what gets you there. Trusting in the blood of Christ to reconcile your account. So the question for you this morning is this. Are you giving Jesus mild approval or are you all in? Because when people met Jesus, they responded in a couple of different ways. Read him. They met him. They either hated him and wanted him dead. They were afraid of him and left confused because they wouldn't listen. They ignored him or they fell down and worshiped and gave everything, gave all of their life and called him Lord. We are in a place still to this day where many try to live a socially acceptable gospel. We just can't do that anymore. The supremacy of Christ calls us to understand and know that there's no diet Jesus, Jesus light or Christ zero it doesn't work that way because it's not biblical. Paul warned the Colossians. He set them up. The supremacy of Christ over every part of life. He's reconciled you. Now go stand firm in the faith. Don't waver. Stand. Be stable. Be steadfast in the foundation of the hope of the gospel. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel that you had heard through Epaphras. That was the truth. Don't shift away. Don't move away, but be, be firm and steadfast. So today I want you to settle it. Jesus is Lord, or he is not Lord at all. In the times that we live in, what we're doing, where, where we're turning, who are we listening to, who are we following, what is social media doing, cannot be Christians of Jesus' light. If we say Jesus is Lord, that means that he will change every part of our life. It may take some time, but he's going to call you to parent differently. 
He's going to call you to grandparent differently. He's going to call you to your marriage in a different way, husbands and wives relating to one another according to the word of God as Christ loves the church. It's going to have an impact on how you steward your resources, your money, how you make decisions for the church, most of all, most important, how we steward the gospel. It's going to impact how we worship and how we pray. It's going to impact your profession, your mission, your ministry, matters of intellect. It's going to affect your time, the loves of your life, your conversation, your pleasures, eating, playing, athletics, what we watch, what we enjoy, maybe by art or music or worship. It has a profound effect on every aspect of life. So let me encourage you to stand firm. Remember that Jesus is supreme and that he is in first place. Evaluate the areas of your life because there is a battle for supremacy over your life and over your heart. He is Lord of your life or he is not. I would encourage you, though, don't waver from the hope of the gospel. That's all we need, the hope of the gospel. The glorious truth of God's word is, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And his name is Jesus. So be courageous, for he has conquered the world. Stand firm in the gospel and celebrate the supremacy of Christ Jesus, our Lord.